0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wise Woman Podcast. We are so grateful to have you here. We have a special guest host today, Zoe Flammenbaum. Enjoy. everyone and welcome to the wise woman podcast featuring leading voices in 2019 supporting women to fully show up connect to their feminine authenticity and truth i'm your host zoe flamenbaum and i love sharing the practical and proven ways that we can train our brains and our bodies to create healthier habits for happier lives, and essentially to connect a community of good women who live with good values and good vibes. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with our guest, Leanne Kay. Leanne Kay is an author, a speaker, a powerhouse woman, a poet as well. She just wrote a book called I'm a Proviver. Sorry, I was already singing your book title. I'm a, provi- I'm a Proviver. Wait, let's do that again. <laughs> <laughs> One second. I was, that was uh, fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> hold on, I need to pull it up. Okay, today I am so excited for our guest, Leanne Kay who is an author, a speaker, and a poet who just wrote a book called Previver. One more time. <laughs> I'm a Previver. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I am, one second, and begin. I am so excited to introduce our guest today. I have with me Leanne Kay, who is an amazing speaker and author who just wrote a book called I'm a Provider, My Secret Legacy, a memoir from an ordinary girl who finally took control of her life. Can't we all relate to that, sister? Leanne, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: We're so happy to have you. And um, Leanne and I connected a few—I well, guess maybe last year already—over our yeah. our poetry. And um, and today, I'm really excited to to hear your story and to share your story. Um, tell us a little bit about what what this book is about and and your story.
1: Okay, so uh, for me, the book kind of. Um, it was a project 20 years in the making, more than 20 years. Yeah, around 20 years in the making, I uh, um, was always scribbling notes everywhere and never really sharing them with anybody. But I used it as a process um, to sort of emotionally heal or emotionally deal with whatever was going on in my life. And um, when I came to have to face my own situation uh, at 35, 20 years after, um, my mother's own diagnosis when I was 15 years old. And I wrote about it. Then, 20 years later, at 35, I faced my own uh, decisions to make regarding breast cancer, breast cancer risks, and surgical options. And I realized, wow, I've got all of this material sitting there. And I began to write again, uh, again to use it as an emotional tool. Uh, but I started writing my journey of what was going on now, 20 years later, for, my, for me. So the the book literally is a real-time chronological uh, account of my life from the age of around 15 when my mum first got diagnosed with breast cancer and her treatment, and unfortunately she did uh, not win the battle with breast cancer. She passed away when I was 20 and she was only 48. Mm-hmm. And I um, have all these beautiful writings and memories uh, That were sitting there and I realized when I went through my own surgical process that this needs to be shared that there are people that will benefit from this story and just chatting you know through uh, people that I met through work and people that I was meeting through the medical charity world I realized just how vital my voice could and would be in Mm -hmm. a world where there is so much confusion misinformation fear stress Mm -hmm. And general, just a lack of direction of what to do with all this new technology. It's like exploded onto the uh, medical sort of tapestry of of what we're all looking at now, which is, okay, I might be well today, but how do I remain well? And the whole opening of preventative medicine um, means that there's a gap, you know? There's a massive information gap, and there's a lot more, sometimes... Yeah, it's sometimes it builds to be more fear because, because it's, a, it's something that we can't talk to our mothers and our grandmothers and our aunties about because they never had to deal with these questions.
0: Right. Well, um, before, before we move on, um, first, also, Leanne is very uh, – I, I want you to share what a provider means because I know you're also doing a lot of work um, in terms of really raising awareness – um, for preventative breast cancer, and that means BRCA testing, and that's where you're, you're coming in with all this fear and stress in this preventative medicine. So tell us a little bit what, what your definition of Previvor is, and, and share uh, how that relates to you for a bit.
1: Sure, so uh, Previvor was actually a phrase coined by force, which is the charity uh, for familial cancers, for ovarian and breast cancer, for, her, for the whole world of hereditary cancers. So the, the, the word provider really came about, I guess, soon after characters such as you know celebrities such as angelina jolie went ahead and publicly did a preventative surgery Mm -hmm. that it was soon after that that the the world the sort of breast cancer world felt that we needed a word to describe somebody that went through the surgery process but hadn't in fact had cancer Mm -hmm. and um so yeah so the word "previvor" literally means to previve cancer now um just so I can mention this and it happens, it does happen a lot. And I've I've got I don't know, I get 10, 20, 30, 40 emails, messages, phone calls, connections with people all over the world mm-hmm. who uh it t- intended to be a proviver, intended to have preventative surgery, but very sadly, and because life does get busy for all of us, very sadly that they, they were they were going to start the process of becoming a proviver, you know, making all the plans to get preventative Mm -hmm. surgery, knowing that they'd already had the genetic blood test, sometimes months, sometimes years before, you know, some people are walking around with this information that they are BRCA positive. Uh, And just to explain a little bit more for anyone listening that doesn't know if they could be or would be or what BRCA is, it's actually a mutation of one of the genes, which makes it Um, which means that we're more susceptible, we're more likely to um, get certain types of breast and ovarian cancer. And being given that diagnosis is not something that I feel, again, that the world was quite prepared for. Mm. So there's a lot of women wandering around with a positive brca results, they know that they are BRCA positive, yet don't really understand exactly what their best foot forward is. Mm -hmm. For example, it's it's giving a predetermined risk of ovarian and breast cancer. Now, the issue is you can surgically remove both ovaries and the breasts, right? Mm -hmm. But if you go plunging in, and I have met a lot of women in this scenario, without really You know, no fault of their own. They're following the guidance of the doctors that they've visited who panic and get rid of the ovaries because with ovarian cancer, it is a silent killer and it is taking the lives of many, many young women. Mm -hmm. Whereas they see breast cancer as a lesser panic sort of thing just because we can find it. You feel a lump in the breast. It's more out there. Right. Right and so what's going on a lot with the provider world and the surgical world is women are having their ovaries removed then realizing that they can't have any form of HRT whilst they have breast tissue and they are BRCA positive
0: What's HRT? so what's happening
1: um sorry they can't have any hormone replacement therapy they can't take hormones okay because of the indication that if you're taking hormones you're increasing the risk of breast cancer even more on a woman that already has a high risk so what's happened is and what i've been in touch with different people about is the women that are having the ovaries removed first unfortunately are experiencing quite high levels and significant levels of mental distress severe depression and things like this because they're not balanced right because of this i'm talking about now specifically women under the age of uh, 40. Okay. So they're going, That what's happening is they're having their ovaries removed. They're going into what they call surgical or shock menopause. They cannot take the hormones which will balance them out again because they still have breasts mm-hmm. and it's leaving them in. So, so it's just another area that I didn't even, I wasn't that aware of because it wasn't the advice I personally got was, yes, you need to remove both the ovaries and the breasts to reduce your risks. Uh, but from my perspective and for many other women, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a more significance to get rid of uh, the breasts first and then the ovaries because then you can take the hormones.
0: Got it. So, so for anyone who has the BRCA positive gene, it impacts both Breasts and of ov- and the ovaries, but you're exactly. saying that in terms of what the next steps are, if you do choose to have this preventative surgery, um, mm. it's not a good idea to have your ovaries removed, despite medical guide, despite medical guidance, or it. I mean. I love- It depends because, again,
1: there are lots of people that get very, very upset with me, so I'm sort of sticking my Mm -hmm. head out on a ledge because women that have seen their mothers, sisters, aunties, grandmothers die from ovarian cancer Mm -hmm. will, of course, be very impassioned and ready to get the ovaries out yesterday. Mm -hmm. And it isn't everybody. It's like everything, the statistical analysis. It's just a very small minor point that I felt would be worth sharing today because uh, I've just recently met women that are looking to me for guidance and saying, well, why didn't you do the ovaries first? So Mm -hmm. I find myself explaining it because I did the personal research. But by absolutely, it's not an absolute. Mm -hmm. I would just say anybody that knows that they may be BRCA positive, and you may be BRCA positive if you have any relative both on the father's side or the mother's side Mm -hmm. who have had breast or ovarian cancer. And there are several other cancers, which I don't want to get too much into, but there are other triggers and other cancers that may be an issue as well Mm -hmm. in the family. Uh, so I don't want to be overly like, don't do your ovaries, because for right. some women, that is the first thing that they want to do and should do for their own mental well-being. Because yes, you've got surgical shock menopause, but you've also then got a woman that's terrified. Right. And there's women, and the gamut is so wide and so broad spectrum, women literally from 18, 19, 20, getting uh, told that they're BRCA positive, right up to women, either ignoring it, not being aware of it, not wanting to face it uh, at the other end at like forty five fifty. So mm. the decision and the surgical process for Anyone finding out that they're BRCA positive is very, very much a personal, individualized medical decision because mm-hmm. it's your age, it's your familial factors, it's your lifestyle, it's whether you've had children, not had children, want children. Even for me, uh, one of the things that almost made me laugh out loud I think I did laugh out loud I have three children mm-hmm. and I'm very, very complete in my family. I'm also single mumming it. Mm-hmm. And every single doctor that talks to me about removing my ovaries, first of all, suggest, puts me in the direction of freezing the eggs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that is something that's very, very common, and most women of childbearing age, which again, you can say from 18 to 45, uh, are, given, are being given the option around the world of freezing eggs, of mm-hmm. um, going through the process, similar to IVF, to create an abundance of eggs and then freezing them before they are removing the ovaries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just on a side so that people are aware of that, that it isn't the end of your fertility. There are there are lots of uh, women that opt to take that, you know, that, that go for that option as well.
0: Right. Um, that's like a whole load of information that's really to think about. And I'd love to to just zoom out for a moment because mm. I think even I know... Um, that you're doing a lot of work and and the way that you speak is to just kind of like the basic encouragement to go get tested of this bracket. And, and you mentioned also about this mental stress and and kind of facing facing the fear. So can you talk a little bit about maybe your decision um to go te- to go get tested and and Absolutely. what the process was and also like how how you decided to face your fear and maybe speak to, you know, these women who Who, I mean, just the thought of of walking around and knowing that you have this positive gene, what that could mean and and how it impacts our, you know, mentality and our our bodies and our brains.
1: Absolutely. It can... um... Well, we all know that stress can, in fact, in itself, make you ill.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: for me, the decision process and getting tested was a little bit unusual because I lost my mum at the age of 20. And within a, a couple of years, I attempted to figure out – it was all starting to bubble around early 2001, 2003, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It was already bubbling around, like we should all know who's bracker, who's not BRCA, like what's going on. And I got an invitation to go to a uh, professor of genetics who talked very confusingly and a bit overwhelmingly about this new BRCA test Mm -hmm. and scared the life out of me, to be honest. And I just, Mm -hmm. at that point at 20 years old, i thought well okay i get that i have to eventually maybe remove my breasts but i'm 20 23 whatever just actually got married at 23 and it was just something that was so many worlds away from my own understanding of what he was even relating to my my reaction to be quite honest was like thank you very much shut the door and we won't talk about that for another decade i guess Mm -hmm. um even though i'd literally witnessed um not just my mum, there are other family members, unfortunately, they also had breast cancer and did it, and some have made it and are still with us, and some have, have have not. Um so for me, as much as the fear was very, very real and I understood that preventative surgery could and should be an option, this whole gap from the age of 20 to when I actually took a test at 35 is another reason why I'm so passionate about talking about it and why I say that. I'm an ordinary girl who finally took control of my life. And I put emphasis on the finally because Mm -hmm. that was 15 years of just not taking care of it. And it wasn't fun. I was worried. I was definitely stressed and I definitely had symptoms of a woman with a background, quiet, but very present stress. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea if it did or didn't impact on other parts of my health. For example, I did suffer many, many years of very extreme migraines. I still have them on a minor level. But I have to say, since going through the surgical process, that that all of that did lower. Um, So what brought me to get tested at 35 is actually interesting. I... um, knew I should do it and I was going to do it around the age of 30 Mm -hmm. but living in a foreign country having three kids I managed to get through a divorce have a kid with a new person that relationship unfortunately broke down so on the backdrop of me being in around 30 with a one year old four year old and six year old and finding myself pretty much doing it on my own the last thing I could conceive of was major surgery and being unable to do all the things I needed to do Mm -hmm. because there was no backup there was no that there was me and my three boys and lots of lovely friends but of course the, the 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 pragmatic issues and the reality for me were just not something that I was ready to consider mm-hmm. however I look back on that phase and think I'm very very grateful and thankful to the universe and whatever it is that protected me during that phase because when I finally made a decision to do it at 35 my life wasn't that much easier right Mm -hmm. not that much had changed the kids were a bit older but it was still this is what what sort of was really powerful in my head that yes you can make all the excuses you want the reality is it's not an easy decision to have the BRCA test and I'm not talking about surgery now I'm talking about the blood test Mm -hmm. it's this kind of like once you know you know you can't unknow but while you don't know you're like in some sort of ignorant bliss but it's not bliss because Uh, you don't know. So what actually happened with me is I finally went for the test at 35, kind of quite um, sure that it would be positive. So I wasn't shocked. Uh, I think I would have been more confused and almost more upset if it had been a negative. And the reason for that is that I firmly understand and believe that even though we've detected many mutations, we're still at the beginning of this discovery. Mm. So for me, I'd been told, oh, Leanne, you're not BRCA positive. For me personally, I think I still would have fought with the system and paid maybe potentially out of my own pocket to have preventative surgery. Hmm. Just from the perspective that I'm, I'm aware that there are other mutations. Now, again, it's not to heighten. There's a lot of medical people in charge, if you like, the men wearing suits, the women wearing suits, that don't want us to overly test. Why? Because in the short term, it's a massive cost to any healthcare system.
0: so mm-hmm.
1: they don't really, uh, they, they like to kind of, um, yes, we all need to get tested, but there's, there's the powers that be are keeping the parameters tighter than I believe necessarily they should be. Uh, and, and the education, and that's why I'm also very passionate about talking about it. Uh, just to zoom in on what actually happened with me when I was 35, I went to get tested and I, got, um, I was waiting for the test result and a friend of mine who we trained to be midwives together back, you know, 15 years earlier. And unfortunately, both of us lost our mothers within a year of each other. Mm-hmm. She messaged me and it was so poignant uh, that I can still sense the emotional reaction I had. Because we're both 35. we have both lost our mothers. We're both going for these BRCA tests. Um, and what she said to me was, uh, you better get tested. Lucky me. I got it. And I didn't understand initially that she meant she got breast cancer. I understood that she got, she found out she was BRCA positive. And then when I later realized she actually got breast cancer, I, I it was a visceral reaction. I think I actually vomited. I just felt so shocked that, here, you know, this is, this is my counterpart, right? Mm-hmm. We're only 35. We're both doing all the relevant checks. We've both been through all the same medical procedures. We've been advised to, you know, at some point do the test and make you know decisions to move forward and here she was with breast cancer now um just to give conclusion on her story she she had treatment she got over it she she's amazingly well she got amazingly well and healthy and was almost five years clear and devastatingly now unfortunately she has secondaries and it's mm-hmm. uh something that they she may then be a lifelong um a patient, really, like like for for the rest of her life, and we've had lots and lots of amazing chats. And she is also one of the reasons why I feel even more motivated to shout very loudly about the issue here, mm-hmm. because people have become complacent about breast cancer, and I and not even sort of zooming out, specifically, but people have started to see breast cancer, and even my own mother back in 1995 felt that breast cancer was the good cancer. Why? Mm -hmm. Because people are living with it. You see it everywhere. Oh, I had breast cancer 10 years ago. I had breast cancer 20 years ago. I have. And you hear this and it's out there and it's out there in the celebrity zone. So somebody sitting at home that knows they might have a risk for breast cancer suddenly starts thinking, well, it's a risk. But I think, well, I'm not that worried because like, <clears throat> literally the, the the conversations I've had have been quite startling which is like well if I get breast cancer they'll just cure it right
0: hmm, mm-hmm. and
1: my answer is and that's why I'm mentioning my good friend <clears throat> who we go back all those years to training to be midwives together um, that she is the case in point not everybody just gets breast cancer gets treatment and gets on with their lives not everybody
0: hmm Thank so. you. Thank you. Also, thank you for sharing that. And, and thank you for shouting, um, mm-hmm. shouting from the rooftops, because I mean, I think this is such a, a sensitive topic. And I mean, I know. Everyone that I know has been touched by cancer in some way, shape, or form, whether it's themselves or whether it's a family member um, and whether, you know, whether it's breast cancer or ovarian cancer or th- any, any other kinds of this this killer, right? Um, so it's it's really, it's important work that you're doing trying to, to raise awareness and and trying to bring this to the forefront and it's not an easy conversation it's always a hard conversation but um it is kind of like you know you 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 said it yourself right you went 15 years not knowing and once you decided so so once you decided at 35 to to get the test and you determined that you were BRCA positive um what was like the next what was the next decision that kind of took you to the next stage?
1: So so for me, it was very, very crystal clear. I was like, right, where do I book the surgery? I um, literally immediately began the process of booking my preventative mastectomy surgery.
0: And so you knew that you were going to get preventative surgery. Like what was your thought process? How did you, how did like, tell us like, what was the snap that we're like, okay, let's just book it. Or how did, how did your mind work then? I think
1: before I even heard from my old, you know, university friend, my, my fellow midwife partner, uh, before I heard from her, for me it was they're sitting there and they're telling you these statistics and they are frightening, uh, but not everyone. I'm also very much aware and I do hold hands with a lot of women who are making the decision not to go surgical mm-hmm. or to delay surgery. And for me, um, I I know myself and I know the level of – Um, surveillance that's required to basically make sure that if they do discover a cancer that they discover it early enough whatever that may mean
0: Mm -hmm. again
1: I reiterate that even if you discover cancer early it's always better to not get cancer I think that's my message Mm -hmm. Uh, and for me there was a massive amount of fear anxiety not even my brain didn't even quite equate with okay so I'm gonna have my breasts amputated, that was like there. But for me, being having been a little bit medical and, and sort of been in and out of a, a medical environment being a midwife person, I had this ridiculously high level of stress and fear about having surgery and about being put to sleep. It was almost secondary why I needed mm-hmm. to be put to sleep. Uh, but my fear and my build-up and the level of stress that hit me was as I built up closer and closer to the surgical day was actually centered around I don't. I've never had a surgery. I've never had been put to sleep. I don't know how my body's going to react to that. And I became obsessively concerned about it. I looked. I talked to the anesthetist at length about the different medications and what they do if I um, have, like, if I start waking up, what happens to me, and what happens if when I finish the surgical process, if I don't come to so quickly. And as is with a lot of things in life, that you can, I, I believe, that you put out into the universe. Um, it did actually happen. Like one of my fears did actually happen, which was that, I mean, I don't have actual general memory from it, but it's just interesting that it paled into so much insignificance once I went through the process. But what my fear was of, will I be, <clears throat> will I be okay with the general anaesthetic was no, not entirely. And it's a bit of a rocky journey, mm-hmm. um, getting out of the surgical process, but at the same time, I would never opt to not do the surgery. Hmm. Because the surveillance that's required when you are single mumming it, three kids, <clears throat> and navigating the whole med- the whole medical services, it's like every three months you've got to be somewhere else. Right. And they're not small appointments, and they're not easy appointments to do. So you would have to make sure, for example, that you're by, you have to have an MRI every six months, but you can't book it. <clears throat> most of the uh, places where you book it, you can't book it before six months. Does that make sense?
0: Right. So you, you just, your mindset was just, you know, off with the breasts and let's just move, move forward. Is there, how do you, how do you feel kind of post making that decision? I know that we also spoke to kind of um, the, the similarities and the differences between, you know, what is a previver? What is a survivor? What is a thriver? Um, and the, the, the kind of like the tension within these various groups of, of, you know, women who have, have been through the same kind of process in, in their own different kinds of ways. Um, so where do you kind of fall after making this decision, after the surgery? I mean, clearly it, it came out in this beautiful art form this, that is that is your story and it is the legacy of your mom and, and this mm-hmm. amazing book and, and, and the work that you're doing today. But where are you kind of Or after that and and how did you how did you heal through or how are you healing like through this process yeah i'm really honest
1: about it as with everything and there are some days that are dark and the days i call it playing pretend uh, where i actually emotionally pretend that i didn't do it and Mm -hmm. kind of go around believing that they are my breasts and everything's normal and fine and we'll just keep going and i literally put myself in a different mindset um that that's I mean it's three years since the surgery I would tell anyone that's going into the surgery that's just had this preventative mastectomy surgery I did it with nipple sparing again it's a very personal decision and it ends up in a whole sort of web of statistical analysis but to keep the nipples essentially leaves you with a two to three to four percent risk remaining of getting breast cancer but in women younger women they my particular plastic surgeon and my breast surgical team felt that the negative impact of removing the nipples was far greater and bigger than the potential risk of leaving them behind but my take on where i'm at now most of the time i'm so happy that that it's behind me i am so relieved i'm very aware of who i was before and who i am now and Within the world of providers, survivors, lifers and thrivers, there are tensions, because some people will feel that I cannot understand what it feels like to be diagnosed, have a t- cancer diagnosis. Um, Just on an aside, I did blog a little bit about it, and it's important for me to say this, I did have a massive, massive wake-up scary experience, not the same as somebody actually being diagnosed and going through treatment, but when I went for my pre-surgery MRI six weeks before my own surgery, they found growths on both breasts. Now, they had no way of telling me whether they were cancerous or not. I had a disastrous meeting with a doctor that wasn't equipped to talk to me at 9 a.m. And I didn't get hold of my surgical team till 6 p.m. So in a way, I feel a little bit connected on that level that I spent this 24 hours or, if you like, a working day thinking, wow, I think I might actually have cancer now. And that's making the surgery instead of preventative, curative. Uh, So I feel like that kind of changed my mindset and made me, it it, it sort of made me um, have a different sensibility about it. But what I wasn't aware of until a recent talk that I did, which was a walk the walk, uh, entitled walk the walk, I stood up and spoke primarily about preventing breast cancer for any woman of any age. In other words, where do you need to go? What do you need to do? Why should you be checking yourself? How do you check yourself? How old should you be when you check what? And I really talked a little bit more about the pragmatic side to being breast aware and preventing and and discovering breast cancer as early as possible or let's prevent it from the outset. And the result of that talk, I mean, there were more than 200 women there, Mm -hmm. but I got two messages within a week, both women... uh, felt motivated from meeting me from seeing that i'm this ordinary girl and not angelina jolie that they could relate to me and they could see my lifestyle and feel that that was like then that they quickly hurried literally the next morning to go and get ultrasounds mammograms meet with their doctors that was way outdated like things that they haven't dealt with in a year two years three years five years and the messages are still coming in and that talk was given in the middle of april but out of all the messages two women have literally been in touch uh pretty consistently we're talking who uh went for these tests and both discovered early uh um basically They have cancer. They had breast cancer. And had they not gone and had they not seen me talk, they could have easily elapsed another six months, another year. And let's Mm -hmm. be honest, therefore, the diagnosis could and very potentially could be much more serious.
0: Right. So also, like, a lot of the work that you're doing is, is, you know, kind of – leave, leave, leave behind what, what the diagnosis is, but at least go get checked and go, Mm -hmm. go, like if you get checked early enough, then, you know, everything is possible as opposed to if you Continue to wait, and I, I know myself included. You know, you always wait until it gets really, really bad, until it gets extreme, until there's some mm-hmm. kind of like extreme pain to go get checked. When really, your body is always hinting at you, or if your mind is like this, it's you a, wouldn't it's, believe the stories. Yeah. I mean, the stories of women saying that their nipple
1: mm-hmm. was
0: becoming inverted
1: basically, mm-hmm. that a nipple was being they could see that it was sort of disappearing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how. Like in my mind, you can say on the one hand, how is a woman ignoring that, but then put the backdrop of three kids under six, a difficult marriage, the bills aren't getting paid, and she's like, well, it it could be something, but she just doesn't pay attention to it. The other thing that I wanted to say, and it's something that I'm very willing to get involved with, with whatever way I can, which is something that I'm really passionate about is the peer-to-peer support. Mm -hmm. In other words something that I got involved with it's maybe sounds a bit strange to say it but uh trying to think of the best word but basically I learned that women need to see um women need to see the results of the surgery and Mm -hmm. that is the most comforting thing I can offer to anyone whether they're whether they're waiting to get tested for the BRCA gene whether they know they're BRCA and they have to have they want to have surgery or women that have been diagnosed with cancer and yes the surgical outcome is different i need to state that very very black and white and clearly mm-hmm. somebody that has cancer depending on where it is may not have the same aesthetic results as a well woman without cancer just from the dynamic of what they you know they have to um when they're when they're doing the preventative mastectomy it's all healthy tissue when they're doing a surgical uh, reconstruction obviously it's not all healthy mm-hmm. so there's a lot more if you like it like a jigsaw puzzle there's more missing pieces And they can do wonders and the results can be magnificent. And I really want to yell about that because one of the things that stops people going to get tested at that first stage, like Mm -hmm. opening the door to this breast cancer world, is the fear that they're not going to feel feminine, that they're going to lose some part of their identity and that ultimately that they will not cope with that. Mm -hmm. And it's valid. It's a valid issue. So one of the things that I, I feel that can really combat that is the more and more women that expose their surgical results. Mm-hmm. And I did, I was in a talk in New York at one of the, um, with one of the major leading plastic surgeons over there and we actually went behind curtains I'm describing this for anybody that, that can access this or wants to, to maybe set something up like this. But we went behind curtains and you couldn't see my face or like, you know, below the waist. And literally they would open the curtains and women would walk past and be able to see in real life, live surgical results. Wow. And I don't think in my whole life there's anything more powerful than that.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. And, and also being that we're not Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and everyone's perception on what that would mean. Not that what she does and her voice is any less relevant. It's hugely relevant and it had a massive impact. But what I'm learning is that the ordinary girl thing that I um, was aware could have an impact has a very, very real,
0: real impact. Wow. That's, that's, I mean, even just hearing about it is super powerful and, I mean, makes me awesome. Like, even you touched on it too, you know, I know I, like, whenever you speak about breast cancer or ovarian cancer as well, there's this, this concept of femininity and, and our bodies that, that make us feminine. But, um, I mean, I know I've heard your poetry, so I can speak to the fact mm-hmm. that, uh, you have like feminine feminine energy like spewing out of you let's put it that way um in like the most beautiful way but can you speak to that in in regards to you know how did this how did this mm. impact you and um you know so,
1: yeah there's a whole other thing and I really feel almost like it's some sort of um meant to be phase that I'm in now which I'm in a post-surgical phase and I'm single again mm-hmm. whatever but I'm single mm-hmm. and I'm on the dating scene and it's weird and I genuinely feel like it's like this weird thing like when do you bring that into the conversation mm-hmm. by the way I had preventative surgery by the way I have to have more preventative surgery which is something when you're meeting somebody and I'm saying within six to twelve months by the way I am planning and booking my um, the removal of the ovaries mm-hmm. uh, so there, mm-hmm. there may be a, another mini sort of uh, not really sure exactly how I want to go public with it but for sure at the very least I'll be blogging about it again just to really like shed a a real person light on it Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fear wrapped up in that so my head is at one point okay where am I at as a provider on the dating scene and what does that mean to my everyday life and it on the most part it's kind of interesting because people don't notice right Mm -hmm. it's not in my head it's like that thing where you've got a pimple on your face on your face a massive spot and Mm -hmm. all you can think about all day is everyone's noticing that ugly spot when Mm -hmm. actually nobody's noticed it they're like hello Leanne how are you here's your coffee and nobody's noticed that awful spot and that's sometimes how I relate to the world now as a provider it's that question of when do I tell people and how Mm -hmm. relevant is it and 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 not even just on the dating th- scene, on a professional scene, on a uh, wider friendship scene. It's something that some women, when they go through this process, and I've had contact with these women as well, but when they calm down, there's like a calming down phase where you have the surgery. There's an immediate, I would say, it isn't an easy surgery in the sense, and I would never call it an easy surgery. And I would never, one thing that I'm also very passionate about is I don't like it when people tell me I got a free boob job. Mm. I want to slap them in the face because there ain't no free boob job. And darling, the the recovery, the surgical pre part to it, the psychological impact, it is not a free boob job. I had something amputated and it upsets me that it's not dealt with on that level either. Because Mm. if somebody had their finger removed or a body part removed, you would there's a whole different psychology about dealing with that. Whereas way that a lot of providers are perceived by their and I'm talking immediate family husbands and parents and cousins they look at you and go wow look at you you breastfed three kids and now you got uh, breasts that look better than they did when you were 16 wow you should just be lucky you should just be applauding yourself and wow. it's those times when i realize and i face my own reflection in the mirror and it doesn't always look good i mean i literally go through a process sometimes when i take off my got you know my bra or whatever mm-hmm. i have to like shuffle things around mm-hmm. um you know, like, you know, um, but to be honest, we were all at that point. I think when you get to a certain age and you have breast, anyone out there that's breastfed three children to an extended period will resonate with me in that they, you know, they don't look quite like they did when you were 21. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I wouldn't, I don't want to ebb on that fear because at the same time, the surgical results are phenomenal. And to the point that if I'm really blunt and honest about it, most people don't notice.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: fact, mm-hmm. I would say they don't notice. They don't notice, um, even when I've exposed myself for the medical journals and the doctors, doctors find it hard to see my scars. They don't understand where the incisions were. I mean, that's how ridiculously phenomenal the work was. Um, And even with the the, uh, emphasis on on making the result look natural as opposed to implants, you know, Mm -hmm. somebody that's enhanced their breast will have a certain type, uh, typical, atypical look. Now with providers, we don't, most of us don't want that. We're not going in the door to pop out the other end with mm-hmm. enlarged, uh, sort of overly-sized breasts. Most women, in fact, from my experience, go smaller. Um, but the so, general impact... Sorry, go on.
0: No, go, go ahead. I think uh, we're, we have to start wrapping up, but I think okay. it's, you, you're definitely speaking to the fact that even if there is like phenom- ph- phenomenal physical success then there's still this like psychological weight that's sitting with you that needs to be dealt with and managed and and maintained and I think um, that's a lot of what you speak to. So I'm really um, thankful yeah. that you are that you're sharing that you're sharing yourself and you're you're really putting yourself out there um, because you know it's only when you hear someone else's truth and and story that you know other people. Can can sink in and really relate to that, and um, so so thank you again for sharing that. Um, it's, it's, it's a fine line, Zoe, but yeah. for me between absolutely not wanting to put any
1: extra fear into anyone's head, but at the same time remaining realistic.
0: Mm-hmm. One hundred percent. I mean, it's it, it exists, right? The BRCA gene exists. Breast cancer exists. And can you maybe just like really quickly give us like a uh, stats that you know in terms of? I mean, one in eight women has breast cancer. One in four hundred women uh, has the BRAC is positive uh, for the BRCA gene. Is that?
1: The Ashkenazi Jewish population, and again, okay. I don't like to frame statistics too much, mm-hmm. but if, if if the numbers that are flying about, or were flying about the last time I Googled, would be around one in four hundred Ashkenazi um Jewish women will uh, have, will, we're aware of that, will like very likely to have the BRCA gene, mm-hmm. and the the education that's coming out now is again make sure you're not ignoring the paternal factor in mm. other words it doesn't maybe your mother you know never suffered with breast or ovarian cancer but your father i mean you know men can also get breast cancer that's something that not everyone's aware of men can get breast cancer and so much so that i have three sons and i also am aware that that they and they are already kind of aware uh, but there's a there's a There's an awareness in general that my boys will also need to get tested. And my two brothers have also, one of my brothers has definitely gone through the process and he actually was negative, but it's relevant to them because uh, he also has a daughter. So I just want to uh, reiterate that, that it's from a statistical place that to bear in mind that it's coming down either line.
0: Hmm. Of your family.
1: Thank, thank you and if you have any relative that has had breast or ovarian cancer you shouldn't you should and you are eligible to um get the genetic test
0: so my last my last question for you given you know everything that you shared today and given who who what else you want to shout from the rooftop that if, if every woman in the world could hear one message from you what would it be
1: Okay, so I'm going to share something that my mum actually said um, a lot and she was very shy. (laughs) Unlike me, she really was brave enough to go out and talk in women's groups and she was never somebody to talk in big crowds and she did it. And one of the things that she said that kept ringing through my ears was this. It's only breast tissue. It's not who you are or what you are. And most vitally, it won't stop you snagging the hot guy at the bar. (laughs) so that's my uh, my little sound bite that it's really save. Uh, one of the other things that was banded around just to finish to, to sort of conclude it and wrap it together is um save the woman and not the breasts mm-hmm. and it's something that that really helped me with my decision making process was to understand that that yes it's not an easy decision and it's something that needs to be given care and attention but this is a choice between something that could in fact end your life prematurely or not. And that's, you know, that's the sentiment of the uh-huh. same, save the woman, not the breast.
0: Thank you. So that sits so, so <laughs> deeply, like seriously. Um, thank you so much for being here today for sharing. Um, really for anyone who's listening, I encourage you to go check out Leanne K. I'm a, provi- I'm a provider. Um, I keep wanting the Destiny's Child. at I'm a provider. Well, do you know?
1: In, in the surgery, in the surgery, when they wheeled my me in, I made them play it. We <laughs> had awesome. it playing, and everyone was dancing
0: to yeah. "I'm a survivor." Yes, queen. Survivor. Yes, queen. So well. go check out "I'm a provider." My secret legacy by Leanne Kay. It is a very powerful, very powerful true story about an ordinary girl who finally took control of her life may we all feel the same way and and really uh take control of our lives and save the women um so thank you Le- Leanne for being with us um as always we would love to hear your feedback your thoughts so please share anything that came up for you um we know this is a hard conversation to have but as women and as wise women we really need to start having these these hard conversations so I hope that you take something with you today and as always if you think that this would benefit someone um, please share it with them as well subscribe comment um, and keep sharing uh, with women around the globe thank you so much for being with us today thank you again Leanne and until next time